welcome. This is Christian Peterson, and you're listening to New Books and Islamic Studies. Thanks for joining us. I just finished talking with Sadia Sheikh about her wonderful new book, Sufi Narratives of Intimacy, Ibn Arabi, Gender, and Sexuality, which was published with University of North Carolina Press in 2012. Many Muslim debates regarding women are solely situated in legal or political frameworks. For example, we often find this tendency in conversations about women's leadership in the mosque or the politics of veiling. Saudia Sheikh provides a unique approach to these discussions that puts feminist hermeneutics in dialogue with the thought of the prolific author Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi. In Sufi Narratives of Intimacy, she explores contestations over embodiment and gender, spirituality and leadership, sexuality and power, in order to rethink patriarchal epistemologies in contemporary Muslim discourses. She argues that contesting positions on gender in these debates are underpinned by certain assumptions about human nature, its gendering, and existence. Sheikh outlines the social and ritual consequences of spiritual inequality and initiates reflections on Islamic notions of the central category, human being. Sheikh leads us through Ibn Arabi's dynamic anthropology, ontology, and cosmology, linking the abstract philosophical concepts with concrete daily relationships between men and women. In our conversation, we discuss Islamic feminism, apophatic unsayings and hermeneutics of subversion, Ibn Arabi's interpersonal relationships with women, parallels between the macrocosm and the microcosm, Muslim exegesis, notions of creation, interpretations of Adam and Eve and Jesus' birth from the Virgin Mary, and notions of masculine and feminine Islam. It was really wonderful to talk to Sadia Sheikh, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Sadia Sheikh about her great book, Sufi Narratives of Intimacy, Ibn Arabi, Gender, and Sexuality. Uh, good morning. How are you? Very well, thank you, Christian. And I guess even How though it's morning for me, it's afternoon for you, so <laughs> thanks. Indeed. Thanks for making the time. Um, it's uh, we're we're long distance, so uh, it's been harder to to get everything together. But I appreciate your your patience, and I appreciate you making the time. Thank you very much. It's an absolute privilege, Christian. Um, now, this this really is a wonderful book. Um, I am uh, a big fan of Ibn Arabi, and, um, and I think anyone who uh, is, is interested in Islamic studies in general will really benefit from this because you really bring Ibn Arabi out of this kind of very uh, narrow focus of Islamic mysticism and, and bring him into this kind of wa- wider uh, kind of array of uses. And I, I think it's you've done a wonderful job, and I really think a lot of people will benefit from from reading your book. And I hope they go out and buy it, of course, uh, or at least get their hands on it to read it. So, um, but before. Mm-hmm. We- before we get into the, the the content of the book, can you give us a little bit of background about how you got uh, interested in the study of Islam, perhaps people that have been influential in your approach, or p- perhaps why you stu- uh, began to study Islam? Um, uh, thank you, Christian. I uh, was initially uh, used to read religious studies and Islamic studies just as fun. Uh, I was majoring in, in, in private law and in psychology um, and had ideas of either becoming a, a social justice um, human rights lawyer um, and later on thought, no, law bored me to tears and I would become a psychologist, which was far more interesting. <laughs> and uh, be that as it may, Ibrahim Musa was, I was a student, a graduate student in psychology at the time, and Ibrahim Musa, who's currently at Duke University uh, and was at that time based at the University of Cape Town, uh, came and presented a paper uh, on gender issues in Islam at a camp, actually at a youth camp, a Muslim youth camp that I was at. Um, And I was actually quite taken aback because it was the first time there was somebody addressing from within a faith perspective critically questions around gender. Uh, And so what what I was used to hearing was how Islam liberated women. And as much as I uh, deeply wanted to believe that, the evidence around me was uh, to the contrary. So Ibrahim was the first person that actually from within a faith framework, who was a believer or came across as a, as a committed Muslim, was simultaneously quite critical of questions of gender. And so I started a series of conversations with him and ended up coming to the University of Cape Town to do 
um, to study with him in Islamic studies. So that's really kind of what got me interested was this ability to be both an insider within a tradition and yet critically engage with with issues of gender uh, in the way that, that that he appeared to be doing. Uh, and so Brian Musa was quite influential. I mean, he's you know he's still somebody I consider a mentor um, and, and somebody that I you know kind of consult with. Uh, on, on the occasions that I can. Uh, but it was, it was really his work. And I mean, once I was here as a graduate student at the University of Cape Town, um, one of the other people that became really important in my thinking was Amina Wadud. Uh, and she had come down, as many of you might know, um, you know, to give a, to a conference to South Africa. And I was part of that kind of 1994 where she presented the first talk at the Claremont Main Road Mosque. Um, and that was quite deeply uh, significant for me, participating in that Jumu'ah, ha- hearing a woman who I thought was an authority uh, grappling with questions of gender in, an in, in a way that was, for me, characterized by both um, integrity, commitment to the tradition, and yet a kind of a critical and a very analytical approach. Uh, so these, uh, you know, Ibrahim Musa, Amina Wadud were, were fairly central in my kind of early development um, and, and, and people that got me excited. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, as uh, I, I became familiar with the works of Rifat Hassan and other people, um, and, and that those were kind of formative influences in my life. Now, uh, you've published a lot of very important works, um, and I'm wondering if you could talk about when did this specific project begin to develop as a book, and perhaps you can place it in your your larger larger research trajectory. Uh, I I always uh, kind of think very fondly to this experience. Uh, Actually, my first reading of Ibn al-Arabi was in a course that I was doing uh, when I was um, in the U.S. I was a graduate student at Temple University. Uh, I had gone there on a Fulbright scholarship and very kindly the people at the University of Pennsylvania had allowed me to take courses at UPenn as well. So I was doing this wonderful semester where I was doing a graduate course at Temple in Sufism and that very semester they were offering a, a graduate course in Sufism at Penn and I did both of them. Uh, and one of the people that was in the class with me at the time who was also my Arabic TA was a woman that I think you've done um, an interview with her here is Sarah Tlili. And Sarah and I were, you know, were, 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 on the one hand, she was teaching me Arabic in my Arabic classes. And on the other hand, she was in my class in this course that we did on Sufism. And we then would make time. We became good friends and we would make time to read Ibn al-Arabi or, or just do different Sufism readings together. And my very first experience of Ibn Arabi was when Sarah and I were sitting in her Rez room at the time, and we were reading it in Arabic, um, and actually we were reading it in the Arabic and reading it in the English, and then she on occasion said to me, oh, read the English, the Arabic is pure Greek to her, and so we would kind of go between the English and the Arabic, um, but, but my, my really my most defining memory of that first experience of reading Ar- Ibn Arabic directly, not, not through secondary sources, but, but reading him, uh, was that both of us at some point looked up, and the sun had set, and time had passed, and you know, we hadn't realized that about four or five hours had gone past. And it was that moment of just feeling transported by the ideas of this thinker. And really, they weren't ideas on gender, very interestingly. They were very much his central concepts and what it means to be a human being. Uh, notions on insan Kamil, on human, on essentially what was the his central imaginary of the human being. Uh, which both of us were completely compelled by and just both transported. And, I, and we both literally at some point kind of looked around almost startled that, you know, time had passed, my meter, my car meter that I had put money into, uh, I had I'd lost track of that um, <laughs> and time had passed. It was, it was a very, it was, it was a genuinely transporting reading. Uh, and that was before I discovered that he was so fascinating in terms of gender. That was part of where I started reading Ibn Arabi. Um, and as this went on, I then was, at that point, I was still doing coursework for my PhD. Um, as the time came when I finished up coursework and my comprehensive exams, I was chatting with and, and, and discussing with my professor, who was my supervisor, Professor Mahmoud Ayyub, um, at Temple University, and we were talking about a variety of different things. And then I said to him, you know, I'm really compelled by Ibn Arabi, and I feel like I would really like to work on his ideas on gender. Uh, and Professor Mahmoud, who just was the loveliest man, turned to me in the sweetest and gentlest of voices and said, Dear Saadiya, uh, leave Ibn Arabi for later in your career. We want a PhD that can get done. <laughs> And I very respectfully, in fact, was a bit relieved because I said to him, well, okay, fine. 
I will then leave him and I will try and write on something else and leave him for later in my career. And off I went on my merry way and tried to write a couple of different research proposals on a number of different people. Uh, and for some reason, it just didn't work. Nothing seemed to work until finally I came back to him and I said, okay, um, you know, I've been trying to do this stuff on tafsir. I've, I've tried working with Tabari and Zamakhshari and nothing seems to really grab me. Uh, and given the fact that I, I, I'm still quite compelled with Ibn Arabi, do you think perhaps I could maybe do a comparison between Ghazali and Ibn Arabi, which gives me a little bit less depth with Ibn Arabi? Uh, and that way, you know, I can kind of compare very specific things and I don't have to become you know, too involved in the complexity of this very, very difficult and abstruse thinker. And then he kind of grudgingly agreed to that. And I spent a lot of time writing some stuff on Ghazali and researching it um, and getting it done. And then I started with Ibn Arabi. And when I finally got into the depth of Ibn Arabi in terms of gender stuff, I realized there was just no way that one could compare an ocean and a rivulet uh, no, all respect due to Al-Ghazali, and, but it was, they were just very different thinkers and there was just no, uh, no way to be thinking despite the fact that they both wrote within, you know, wrote uh, fairly, you know, uh, fairly, connect, uh, um, they both wrote on Islamic mysticism, they were writing from very different imaginaries of gender. And I just couldn't find an overlap or a way to do justice to either of them if it was going to be comparative. And that's how my PhD work at least ended up solely focused on Ibn Arabi. I have all of the chapters that I worked on for Ghazali in a nice box that I, you know, am now revisiting. <laughs> um, so, so that was the beginning of my journey with Ibn Arabi. And, um, and you know, and I have been, I have a, <laughs> a fairly crude um, kind of image that, that, that comes to mind whenever I think of Ibn Arabi. I think I'm almost bitten uh, like I almost didn't have a choice. Like I, you know, really tried to do other things and and work on other people. And um, but almost like he had caught me by the scruff of my neck and said, um, "You can do this." <laughs> and and so I submitted. I think he has that effect on a lot of people. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, now, study the the book physically is is beautiful. Uh, University of North Carolina Press did a wonderful job in publishing the book physically, um, but it's also written very beautifully. And I wanted to to ask you um, uh, because I haven't found this in a lot of other books, but in uh, in many sections um, you uh, retell uh, and set a scene for us, uh, almost in a kind of a creative nonfiction. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could uh, kind of reflect upon that and, and perhaps what is the value of telling good stories um, for academics? Many, many of the books we read are very uh, boring, for, for lack of a better word, um, but your, your book reads very well. And uh, I'm wondering if you could just talk about why you did that and how you think that uh, communicates your ideas successfully. Uh, Christian, thank you very much for that question, primarily because I spend so much time working on the writing uh, that, that I'm, I'm very pleased to answer that question. And I, I think I wrote it uh, just incidentally. It took me two years to just work on, on writing it in that particular fashion. And there was a real intellectual motive for it. Um, on, on the one hand, as as some people might know, Ibn Arabi is often, you know, talked about and written about by a fairly small group of scholars. He is difficult. He's extremely difficult uh, to understand. And unless there's some kind of deep, um, you know, deep connection you have with his work, or you're a particular kind of intellectual, often his ideas are, are, are quite impossible to understand. So one of the reasons that I really was committed to making the writing accessible was because I thought here were the most exquisite ideas which were in circulation with a small group of intellectuals who could make sense of this. Uh, and really, there was value for this with a whole host of other group. You know, you know it had value for lots of other people. Um, and part of my commitment was to be able to draw people into the thinking of Ibn Arabi by writing in a way that could engage them and could kind of make it accessible. So part of the writing that I worked really hard for was, you know, to create a story, a more kind of narrative style, was to engage people who would otherwise find him genuinely inaccessible. Uh, and so the creative writing is the idea to, to kind of, kind of um, you know, draw people into his worldview and to make the effort or the intellectual effort that is demanded of when you're reading Ibn Arabi, just slightly more 
worthwhile for people who might otherwise think, well, this is just really too difficult. So that was the first thing. I really, it was a question of, you know, what is my, what is my commitment? Uh, um, and my commitment is to make him accessible on the one hand. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, academic work is boring normally. And I, I didn't want it to be boring. I really wanted it to be, because I think actually the ideas are fascinating um, and the possibilities, both in terms of intellectual possibilities, and for for, for myself as a, as a believing as a believing uh, Muslim, um, just the potential ways in which this can impact uh, gender reform in the Muslim world is is, is you know is is uh, large, and my desire to have this as something that Muslim feminists and Muslim reformers could work with was part of why I needed to make the writing. Interesting. Um, actually, and, and I must give credit here where it's due, uh, Ibrahim Musa, who actually came down to South Africa as in a mentoring program with me, actually sat me down and made me read. Uh, and you might not believe this reading Ibrahim's Ghazali work, which is quite dense for many people. But Ibrahim actually strongly recommended that I write in a narrative style. He actually literally gave me stuff to read and said, read this, look at the style of writing uh, you know that that's been done in this book. This is this is somebody writing on literature. And I want you to be able to think about how you might use that kind of language when you're writing your book. Um, and so, you know, he really did uh, mentor me in the most helpful of of ways. Uh, and I just took the writing very seriously. And it really is a lot of labor uh, to rewrite because we've trained in very dry and and boring styles of writing in academia. Uh, and so, to, almost to retrain yourself. Uh, and to tool yourself in a more creative style uh, was was part of the work that I had to do for the book. So um, part of this is both to make it a compelling read, which I'm hoping that it, it will be, but also to to kind of give the reader a little taste of you know um, to make this to make the, the ideas very complex ideas accessible. Um, and I think the creative writing helps to do that. Yeah, I think you're you're very successful, and uh, if. For, for no other reason, I hope people uh, will look at it for that because I think um, it does make the content, which in this book you're dealing with very complex ideas, uh, much, much more accessible. So you, you did a very good job. Um, now, uh, in the beginning of the book, you, you outlined some of the social and ritual consequences of spiritual equality or spiritual inequality, and you, you initiate our reflections on Islamic notions of the category of the human being and how this category is gendered. Um, so you bring together both the kind of abstract philosophical concepts and then concrete daily relationships between men and women. Um, and you, you frame this uh, discussion in the introduction, at least, um, within two contemporary issues. Uh, one, the, the, the role of women uh, leadership in the mosque um, and politics of the hijab. Um, I, I'm wondering if you could talk about why you frame the conversation in this way and uh, give us a little idea what these debates are about, uh, what the implications might be. Um, but really what you do very well in the book is you discuss kind of what these debates are leaving out and how we can begin to think about these in, in new ways. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Christian. I, and I think, you know, one of the things that I'm responding to, I think, is um, – Another narrative, when one is thinking about gender and Islam, the narrative that I find dis- unsatisfactory, uh, a narrative that men and women are spiritually equal, but socially unequal. Um, and so what I was doing in this introductory chapter was to take two issues that happen very much at the kind of social, everyday, public level, and to say, well, here are issues that Muslims are dealing with, whether it's women's access to the masjid or women's ritual leadership, um, or whether it's questions of, of hijab and dressing. Um, you know, how are these debates that are everyday, very real, socially engaged, uh, you know, uh, how one represents oneself in the public sphere? What are the, the, the what are the ways in which women might or might not have access to to leadership, what are the debates against? And to say, well, actually, these are not simply a question of, well, what does the tradition allow? But more importantly, it's a question of what kinds of narratives of human beings underlie these debates. Because truly, my own kind of uh, my own kind of encounter, you know, as a graduate student here at the University of Cape Town, when I first did my masters here, I I, I did it 
focusing on questions of uh, uh, my, my, my actual thesis, I was very obsessed with this Quranic verse of 434 and I had uh, spent a lot of time grappling with it, struggling with it. I had studied some uh, pre-modern uh, 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 commentators on the, on the verse itself um, and I had actually done lots of interviews with Muslim women. And in all of these narratives on, you know, on violence against women and violence against wives, uh, whether it was coming about, uh, out of readings of the text of the Quran around a verse that seemed to be speaking to this topic, or whether it was asking women how the imams in their particular context and at their masjids or the religious leaders were responding to the situation within their own family, it appeared to me that all of the struggles that one was encountering on this topic and many other topics was at the end of the day, underlying all of the justifications for gender inequality was a certain kind of understanding of who's, who's the human person. And for me, the deficit was at this level. The deficit or what we were, what, what, what was unsatisfactory for me was the ways in which ultimately all of these questions came down to a question of what does it mean to be a human being with an Islam? What is the relationship that each of us have to God? How does our relationship between men and women, between human beings, impact this, you know, impact our our relationship with God. But how, how are these questions of what it means to be a human being enable certain kinds of gender practices and dis, disenable or disable other kinds of gender practices? Um, and so for me, the question was to get, you know, beyond the question of, you know, which parts of tradition say a woman can be a leader and who says, you know, which which Muslim thinkers say, you know, it's fine for women to be uh, uh, leading us, uh, leading a, a, a mixed congregation, and which argue against it. Rather, it is what are, what is it in our understandings of human beings that facilitate these kinds of debates? So, so just to clarify that, which may seem a little bit abstruse at the moment, um, for me, what I found compelling about Ibn Arabi was that when he makes a case, for example, about the question of mixed congregational leadership. His argument is not simply a question of who of his intellectual predecessors or, or scholarly predecessors make the case for or against. His argument is that men and women have been created spiritually equal and hence have the same access to this social, you know, this public, this area of public leadership. And so his argument goes straight down to the question of well, what does it mean to be a human being? What access do we have to the fullness of human capacity in relationship to the Muslim tradition. And if Muslim men and women have that same access, then there's a direct translation of that into the social realm. So effectively, my desire was to connect the ways in which Muslims have imagined being human and what visions of being human are available to us within major, you know, you know within, within the Quran, within other sources of tradition, and to grapple in our context with how that might how that might help us to rethink some of the challenges of gender injustice or inequality uh, that we might be confronting in the contemporary period in a variety of different contexts. Now, um, these contesting positions on gender uh, in, in many of these debates that you're, you've been talking about are underpinned by certain assumptions about uh, what human nature is, what existence is, and um, I, I, following Ibn Arabi, you, you kind of divide these into three realms, which you call anthropology, ontology, and cosmology. Um, can you kind of give us a little outline of, of uh, structurally how these categories work and, uh, and, and what you're trying to, to kind of demonstrate by using these? Yeah. Uh, so when, when I use the cat category of religious anthropology, actually a category that's been used extensively within Christianity, um, uh, Christian theology, uh, but, but actually underp underpins a lot of the different debates within a variety of religions. So religious anthropology for me uh, is a category that refers to asking some central questions about what does it mean to be a gendered human being? Does Islam provide the idea of a universal human essence? You know, is this something that men and women have the same access to? Are there differences? Um, do men and women have the same nature? How does this relate to one's relationship to God and to one's relationship to one another? So definitions of being human, uh, you know, intrinsically also provide meanings of what it means to be uh, kind of um, a, a framework to make sense of what it means to be gendered. 
And then I say, well, actually, it's not just religious anthropology. Religious anthropology is also situated in a kind of ontology. And an ontology in a very kind of basic usage of the word refers to a theory about what is the nature of reality or the nature of being. Um, and it asks, you know, what is in, in the most kind of uh, what, what actually exists? What is the, the, what is the nature of the human being? Who am I in relation to all of that which exists? Um, and so the idea is that cosmology, religious cosmology or religious anthropology um, and, 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 and ontology are two categories that interrelate with each other quite strongly. Now, within uh, these questions on, on religious anthropology and anthropology and ontology are always situated within a certain idea of the universe you know how is the universe created what is the cosmology how you know how does how do human beings fit in within all of creation what is the nature of the cosmos how was it created for what purpose towards what end um, you know and and within all of this what is the human what is what is the purpose of human beings within such a cosmology so the idea is to be thinking about the deep existential questions who am i as a human being, how am I situated in all of creation, uh, in the cosmos, and and what is you know what is what are my prerogatives as a human being, and how are these prerogatives impacted by whether I'm a man or a woman, and so all of these kind of very deep existential questions are not just abstract, but they have very specific implications for how one thinks about everyday gender politics when one is looking at it from from the perspective of a, you know, from a religious worldview. Um, so I hope that that's slightly helpful. Yeah. Um, now, the other kind of uh, very large component is you, you put Ibn Arabi in, in conversation what, uh, with what you call Islamic feminism. And um, you, in the introduction, you kind of give a very specific under, uh, perspective on what you believe Islamic feminism is and where it fits in the larger uh, kind of uh, philosophical tradition of uh, feminist thought. Um, I'm wondering if you could kind of uh, give us a little bit of perspective on on your ideas about Islamic feminism, and and uh, I, I really like how you divide this into um, awareness, activism, and vision um, as a specific way of kind of uh, deploying uh, a feminist perspective in the Islamic tradition. Could could you talk about this a little bit? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, and so, I mean, as many people that might be reading on Islamic feminism realize that even the category is, is open to a number of kind of contestations and people are grappling with, well, what is this Islamic feminism? Do we use feminist language? There's a rethinking even of the terms of the debate. But at this point, I'm still comfortable. Uh, you know, while I'm you know, still grappling with some of these questions myself, as in the meantime, so to say, as we are in the process of rethinking these very categories, I'm fairly comfortable with this idea of an Islamic feminism that, or any feminism for that matter, that is this this kind of this this threefold uh, uh, this threefold approach to feminism, which is awareness, as you noted, uh, activism, and a certain vision. And I think that you know, so what would be different in Islamic feminism from potentially other forms of feminism, not different, but perhaps distinctive, would be that Islamic feminism in terms of the third part of that, this notion of a vision of, well, what is, uh, what is the idea of a human society based on principles of justice, equality, and freedom? Um, what is human wholeness within this context as well? And so the Islamic feminism will provide potentially a very distinctive notion of what that notion of human wholeness might be. Um, and I, I mean, you know, the, the whole notion of, uh, you know, why it's important to use the term Islamic feminism, um, you know, is, is open to, to debate and discussion. Um, but I think, you know, for those of us within the tradition that are committed to revisioning and that are very committed to the tradition and, and to revisioning some of the ways in which Islam is thought about, um, both at the level of rethinking texts, but also in terms of reforming society, the notion of a kind of, um, you know, a, a collaboration with other feminists, potentially people that we can talk to around. So essentially being Islamic feminist on the one hand means engaging with our tradition in a variety of ways. But what I like about using the term is that it also allows and facilitates the possibility of thinking through broader questions of gender justice in the societies that we're in. So, you know, for example, I live in South Africa. I'm a Muslim, but I'm also South African, and I'm also very committed to be thinking very strongly around debates in my society that might not be directly related to the Muslim community, but to, to, the, to the South African community more broadly. And so the, the ways in which I think about feminism in relationship to Islam, 
I, I'm also somebody that is committed to a vision of gender equality more broadly in my society. And so how these critical tools of thinking through gender justice and articulating visions of, of human equality, um, you know, if one is using this language as a certain kind of sisterhood, if one can use that very kind of contested term um, in, in a more nuanced way. Um, so, so I think it's, it's a helpful, you know, it's a helpful way to be to be situating, uh, but it's not the only way. And it's something that I want to be clear that, you know, some people have great and legitimate difficulty with the term. Um, and and that's something that I, I completely respect. Sure. Now, uh, just uh, for, for listeners, um, in, the, in the kind of first chapter, you go over um, s- some of the discussions of earlier Sufis, uh, both kind of more philosophically, but also socially in issues of gender and marriage and sexuality, um, which uh, I'm going to skip over, uh, if that's okay with you, um, so we can kind of get more into uh, Ibn Arabi's thought. Um, and in the, the, the next chapter, you, you focus uh, on this idea of Ibn Arabi's religious anthropology. Um, and here, um, a lot of what you're doing is um, demonstrating how Ibn Arabi constructs notions of human nature in relation to this larger cosmology um, and really getting at this idea of kind of spiritual potential um, and how kind of gender is situated in relation to moral capacity. Um, could you can you walk us through uh, briefly what Ibn Arabi says in in relation to this idea of uh, the human being? Absolutely, um, I, I have, would like to respond before I go to that. If that's okay with you, yes, Christian. Yes, of course. There's, like, there's another aspect of feminism that I just wanted to very quickly um, relate. You know, your previous question that I feel like I haven't. There's a very important part that I've actually missed out. And that's the question of, so I'll get to the question of uh, thinking about the human being in Ibn Arabi's map, but if I can just respond to this very, of very quickly before we continue. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that I think also a feminist reading of, of the tradition is so important, an Islamic feminist reading of the tradition is so important, and I mean, this I outlined in the introduction, but I think that, you know, one of the things that is very valuable is that Readings of the past or history, and I, I speak to you know to a way, to the ways in which Rita Gross, for example, a Buddhist scholar, speaks to how it's important to think about one's tradition um, as being both accurate and usable, and so to, to to think about feminism as a way to retrieve aspects of one's tradition that have been either rendered marginal or invisible, um, and to bring that into the center of conversation. For me, what is very valuable in that feminist move of retrieving marginalized histories and retrieving images of gender and women that are not seen in the center of traditional discourse is to actually reclaim the nature of tradition itself, to say that tradition is not simply this one thing of this patriarchal kind of heritage. We also have within our tradition, you know, aspects that speak to a very different uh, possibility or, we, or speak to very different kinds of understandings of gender. And so my desire to engage with the tradition as a feminist and to be reading for that which is historically has been rendered marginal, like another a number of other Islamic feminists, is in part to make a claim for tradition, meaning that what I would like to do in this process is not to simply say the nature of the tradition is this one thing which is problematic, but rather the nature of tradition is multiple and we can choose to engage with aspects of our tradition that in fact provide us provide us with very rich resources and conversation pieces. Um, not, you know, not in a way of, of simply abdicating to tradition where you say, well, actually tradition says X, therefore I need to, to, to follow it in a certain way, but rather to start a very rich conversation with parts of the tradition that have possibilities for us to retrieve different ways of being. And we have to speak to the past, otherwise, you know, we, we don't really think of ourselves in, the, in a kind of tradition. We, we, you know, part of what we inherit um, as contemporary Muslims or what Muslim, contemporary Muslims might inherit uh, is a variety of things. And I think part of locating yourself in that tradition and arguing for a different vision of that tradition um, often means that you have to engage with that tradition, both critically and constructively. And part of the work that I want to do with Ibn Arabi is part of that creative, critical, but creative engagement with things that have been not not sufficiently engaged with um, in terms of gender equality. So I just wanted to make that point as something that I see that Islamic feminists can bring of value to the main, to, you know, to, to the nature of tradition and to the debates in contemporary, uh, in, in contemporary scholarship. Hmm. Um, and you, you do do that very well in the book. Um, and I think uh, 
your your argument for using Ibn Arabi in general uh, is very convincing. Um, so I hope people do get into the details of this. Um, yes. So in, in this relationship between kind of the macro and the microcosm, um, uh, perhaps you could kind of situate this and, uh, you know, you kind of show how this is rendered into both legal and social realms. Um, so perhaps you can kind of give us an idea of how this, uh, his vision of, uh, of kind of human nature in relation to cosmology and how it gets kind of uh, sure. played out in the lived world. Sure. Um, so, so thank you for that question, Christian. And so what I, you know, my when I started off this interview, I spoke to how I was so compelled by this vision of Ibn Arabi that I just found it quite a transporting thing to read him for the very first time. And part of that was uh, we were reading texts on what it means, um, you know, what is this human archetype that all human beings are to aspire to? And Ibn Arabi sets up this map and uses kind of great cosmological arguments about how human beings are effectively a microcosm of all of the divine attributes and it's the one being that's being created um, which is a distillation of you know of all the divine attributes potentially in the in, in the in perfect harmony so human beings are the only creation that have the potential capacity or the archetypal capacity to reflect all of the divine attributes in the perfect distilled manner. And that's the archetype that all human beings should try and aspire towards. The rest of creation, the macrocosm more broadly, um, these divine attributes are scattered and diffuse, um, diffuse and um, reflected and manifested. Uh, the divine qualities are manifested in the rest of the, of, of the cosmos in more diffuse ways. Um, so all of creation in Ibn Arabi's cosmology is a reflection of the divine attributes, of all of God's attributes. Human beings are unique in their capacity to reflect all of them in one being, in a microcosmic way, in perfect harmony. And so this kind of imaginary of what, and this archetype is known as the complete human being, or an internal camel, the complete human being. And human beings, men and women, uh, need to aspire to this spiritual, this distal spiritual archetype that we all have within us as potential, you know, one, any, every human being can achieve that potential, irrespective of gender, race, any external differences, any differences of, of identity um, are entirely insignificant in this ultimate goal that human beings are to, uh, you know, to, to kind of aspire towards. Um, so, so Ibn Arabi does that in, in very interesting ways and, and not only just makes the case that, that men and women have this, one of the things that I also do in my book is speak about the, the ways in which he describes his female teachers and his female disciples. So not only does he have these very sophisticated and 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 um, and complex complex discussions on what it means to be a human being and this archetype of al-insan al-kamil that all human beings should aspire to that's equally open to men and women alike to all human beings, uh, but he also speaks in a number of other of his writings of men and women that he engaged with that actually. He speaks about how they've distilled certain attributes, how they've become masters of certain kinds of qualities. So he speaks about his teachers in very exemplary ways. He has these two teachers that he speaks about uh, you know, and, and really gives us some very, very nuanced ways to understand how it is that he actually observed these very um, um, uh, you know these very uh, these very kind of um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, well advanced teachers. One of his teachers was uh, you know a woman called Yasmina Umal Fukara, and he speaks about her. And you know I've got a, um, a description if I can find it very quickly. Uh, and the kind of description he uses about her when he speaks about her, and I've just found it here, which says, "Among people of our kind, I've never met one like her." Here he's speaking. People of our kind are people on the spiritual path. So he says, "Among people of our kind, I have never met." one like her with respect to the control she had over her soul. In her spiritual activities and communications, she was the greatest. She had a strong and pure heart, a noble spiritual power, and a fine discrimination. She was endowed with many graces, and I had considerable experience of her intuition and found her to be a master in the sphere. Her spiritual state was characterized chiefly by her fear of God and his good pleasure in her. The combination of the two at the same time in one person being extremely rare among us. So I'm just using this to show that it wasn't simply that he was creating it a kind of theoretical archetype. When he speaks about a number of women, 
um, and men for that matter. But what for me is very interesting is that when he speaks about these spiritual capacities, his reference points are men and women alike. And having had two female teachers when he was a fairly young person, he speaks about them. But he also has extensive descriptions on his female disciples, all of whom, you know, there's one that gets a fairly, um, uh, you know, kind of a, a fairly uh, negative spin. But the rest of them that, that he speaks about have extreme, extremely positive qualities. So on the one hand, he has this, this kind of discussion but on the, uh, of, of what human beings are able to do. And then when he speaks about particular Sufis and particular spiritual teachers and, and, and particular um, uh, uh, people that are on the, on the spiritual path, one has a very clear sense that these are things that men and women alike have access to, have realized, are in the process of realizing, and share fundamentally as the deepest existential prerogative for human beings, men and women alike. Um, and so I find that, you know, I find that very compelling. Um, but the other part that I find quite compelling when you're looking at Ibn Arabi, and I spend you know, quite a few chapters working through the com- complexity of these arguments, but I'm just going to present, if that's okay with you, Christian, yeah. um, just some of the ways in which, for example, he takes um, you know, things that were kind of normal in his time and morphs them, I mean, kind of dominant narratives about men and women. So, of course, one of the, the kind of... Um, Central narratives around men and women um, that 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 that's part of his the part of what's what's taken for granted in his context is the notion, for example, of the creation story of of Eve from Adam of Hawa uh, from Adam, and you know there's how we for those of you that know some of the Muslim feminist literature we know that the Quran, for example, doesn't really speak about this at all. There are no mention of ribs in the Quran, but they come in. Um, fairly enthusiastically at the hadith level. And so we have this notion amongst uh, Ibn Arabi's cohorts, the notion that women are created from the rib of Adam is part of what is taken, and this is drawn from the hadith literature, is seen as being a very normative part of how one makes sense of male-female relationships. Uh, Another kind of part of that discourse, or what was accepted, was this notion of the crooked rib and and all of the kind of associations with deficiency and defect that the notion of a crooked rib might have. And what Ibn Arabi does, I think, very beautifully is, on the one hand, he uses, you know, he takes these narratives that are there and he he doesn't discount them. He doesn't say these hadith are inaccurate or wrong or, you know, these are weak hadith, which is some of the arguments that Muslim feminists have made. But he simply goes with this hadith and he re his, his image, his, the way in which he presents an interpretation of this hadith, really very gently, completely morphs the understanding of what ribs might mean. So, for example, he would say, you know, she's created from the short rib of Adam, but then he adds that this in this rib, then his discussion of the rib is that really it is the epitome, it is the choicest part of Adam, and it reflects everything that's in Adam. So he takes something that has generally been talked about as crooked and deficient and what re- reflects a lack in women and morphs the interpretation of that rib into something about sameness. But not only does he do that, he says, well, you know, what is this rib-like nature? The rib-like nature is something that allows women to bend in inclination towards her husband and children. Um, and, and, you know, this, this rib nature is because she's created from Adam, and so there's a kind of oneness. They both come from one another, and so they yearn for one another. And then he adds, and the man also inclines towards the woman. So the rib nature of the woman is about bending and inclination. And then in his next line, the man also inclines towards the woman with a bending towards himself because she is a part of him. So the rib then becomes about yearning and desire for one another. I mean, it's very much embedded in a kind of dominant narrative of Adam being the source and Eve being derivative. But he's while he's working with that imaginary, he's simultaneously morphing it into something quite different from deficit to one of inclination sameness. And so it's, it's, it's hierarchy still there, but it's romanticizing and eliminating some of the misogyny. And that's the one level at which he works with what is the dominant imaginary. So when you read this, when I first read it, I thought, well, you know, this is all very nice in Arabic, but it's still quite hierarchical and I really have problems with it. And you're just romanticizing an image and making it something else. But I'm really not very happy with you. And then I read on, of course, and as in Ibn Arabi's typical mode, we come across his writing somewhere else. And here he presents us with four models of creation. He says, okay, there's Adam created, and then we have the notion of Adam you know, just being created, and then Eve is created from Adam. But then we also have 
Jesus being created? And we have this notion of Jesus' creation from Mary. So then he makes this kind of really interesting analogy where Eve comes from Adam and Jesus comes from Mary. And he says, well, in the same way that you have a woman coming from a man, you now have a man being born from a woman without the intermediary of a partner of the opposite sex, so to say. And then he argues, so he gives you this thing, and in some sense there's now suddenly this balance of this creation model where you no longer simply have a woman coming from a man, but you have a different model of Jesus who's a man who's created through Mary and without, without there being a, you know, a, 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 a man involved in his creation as a counterpoint to the Eve's creation to Adam. And then he goes merrily along and tells us, you know, well, all of these anyhow, these creations of Eve from Adam and Mary from Jesus are exceptions. The rest of us are created from men and women alike. And so what I like about what he does is that he presents you with, with the dominant narrative. He doesn't say that narrative is not there and should be discounted. He's, he, he, he works it, he morphs it, he changes it, he works within it while changing it. Then he gives you other narratives which actually say, well, you know, Adam and Eve is one myth to be thinking about human beings and how they and then the relationship between men and women. Mary and Jesus gives you another model. But actually, guys, just, you know, don't worry too much about that. The rest of us come from men and women alike. Um, and so this is a real kind of, you know, it's a saying what, what, what would be called in, um, in, in some of the literature and mysticism, particularly, of course, Michael Sells, who comes with you know, some of the most beautiful analysis of ways in which mystics do this process of unsaying, of both saying and unsaying things. He gives you the dominant narrative. He says, if you want to use that language, he articulates or reiterates the dominant narrative. And then through these very paradoxical moves and these stories that bring ambivalence and contradiction into play, uh, unsays the dominant imaginary and opens up spaces for us to grapple in very real terms with, with, you know, with, with other possibilities. And so when you have you know, it's, it's not just thesis, antithesis. It's just, it's the multiplicity and the way in which things are both are played with and morphed that create ways for us not to get stuck in any single conceptual paradigm that we might have, either of God or of men and women alike. And that's what I find so incredibly liberating about Ibn Arabi. I just find it such an expansive way to engage, you know. So he has these myths. He has these notions of Adam and Eve's myth. Uh, Adam and Eve and, you know, all of the rib stories that we have. And then we find, on the other hand, these very powerful images of women coming across, this very, you know, these kind of deep ontological notions. I mean, he has this one kind of quote where he says, there is nothing in the created universe, and I quote, greater in power than women. And this is a secret known only by those knowledgeable about how the universe came into existence and with what motion God brought into the universe existence. Um, and, and then he, unquote, and then he goes on to say something about how women reflect something of the divine essence, the, that which is feminine. And he, he looks at the Arabic and he says, well, this is feminine. It's something. And, and the femininity of the language, the grammatical uh, feminine is actually a signifier of something ontological, actually. Um, and, 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 and by far, my, my favorite way in which he engages with questions in a very subversive but really profound way, um, you know, is this one particular uh, discussion he has when he's talking about God's attribute of strength, al-qawi. And so there's this, and I have to, 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 to read this, and I'll read it slowly and just talk about it a little bit just because I, I find it so interesting. Um, he says, and I quote, so God informs us uh, about what strength he specifically appoints to her. Okay, well, let me just contextualize this very quickly. Okay, so, you know, there was some kind of controversy in the life of the prophet and the two wives of the prophet Aisha and Hafsa um, had aligned themselves and there was, you know, we're not, there's discussions about what this this issue was, whether it was the fact that the prophet spent too much time with one of his other wives. But be that as it may, there was a controversy in the house of the prophet and these two wives of his were unhappy with him. Uh, and so there's a Quranic revelation about that. And he invokes this Quranic revelation when he's discussing the attribute of al-Qawi. So here are two, um, in effect, women that the Quran, when we look at this verse, is actually reprimanding because the Quran says, if you back each up, if you back each other up against him, the prophet, then indeed God is his guardian and Gabriel and the righteous believers and the angels after them are his supporters, meaning Muhammad's supporters. So the Quran is effectively reprimanding these two wives of the prophet who are clearly, you know, in opposition to him and causing some problems and giving him a bit of a headache. And Ibn Arabi's reflection on this, this is what he says. 
he looks at this Quranic verse and he says, there's something about the strength of women that's being reflected, something of the attribute of Al-Qawi that is evident in this interchange and in this Quranic revelation. And in his reflection on this verse, he says, all of this to encounter, to counter the strength of two women, and God mentions only the strong ones who possess power and strength. So the righteous believers act with conviction and, with, and that is the strongest of actions. And if you understand this, you have set off on the path, set off well on the path. So he takes a situation where these two wives are being reprimanded. And on the surface, it's really kind of really they, they're behaving out of order. But what he does is he says, you know, God has to invoke all this help to the prophet just against his two women. God has to back him up and the angels have to back him up and the righteous believers and all of this stuff just against two women, which is really a signifier of how strong women are. And so he doesn't use it as a, as a recrimination against Aisha and Hafsa. He uses it to say, don't, and, and it becomes a model for the believers. So those of you that understand what strength of action and conviction is about, here's an, here's an instance for you to learn from these women who are manifesting Al-Qawi. A very kind of subversive reading of something that is, you know, that, that on the surface can mean very different things. And so I think those kinds of ways in which Ibn Arabi unsays and unpicks the seams of traditional understandings of gender relationships is very powerful and is why I find him a very interesting conversation partner um, and, and a very interesting kind of friendship to have with a thinker that I think is a very expansive thinker and that enables and almost asks us to engage with him in a specific, you know, in, in, a, in this manner. Yeah, and in the book, there's, there's so many uh, really creative and interesting narratives like this uh, which <laughs> we haven't even scratched the surface. Uh, but we have taken a lot of your time, and uh, I'm sure a lot of people are eager to hear about what you're, what you're working on now or perhaps what you have coming out in the future. Um, at the moment, one of the things that I'm doing, uh, despite what I think was a lot of work in making um, this book accessible, making Ibn Arabi's ideas accessible, at least some of his ideas, of course, it's just a drop in the ocean because you know I've really just dealt with such a small portion of his work. Uh, part of what I'm doing, there are two things that I'm doing. Part of this is to try and write these in even more accessible ways uh, because you know there are still people that have read the book and said to me, this is great, you've got me interested in this, but I'm still struggling to understand these ideas. So part of my own commitment is to to make a lot of this uh, even more accessible to the extent that I'm able to, and I'm trying to write um, in, in ways that are even more accessible. So that's just part of tr- what I would consider translation work, not, 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 not a language translation, but translation of ideas in ways that, that, that open it up to different kinds of audiences. Um, the other project that I'm thinking through, and it's um, started, I've started working on um, two other projects. One is I've come back to Ghazali, and I am now kind of going through some of his works and, uh, you know, opened up the old box, my own PhD dissertation box, and, and I'm looking at him. Um, and, you know, and, and so I've been kind of thinking through some of those ideas, and, and I hope to, to publish some stuff on, on Ghazali. Um, and the other project that I'm very interested in is to be thinking about in a more contemporary way, um, you know, Sufism and, and social justice ethics, to be thinking about uh, Sufi ethics in relationship to questions of social justice more broadly. Uh, and that's a project that myself and, and Scott Kugel, for example, um, one of my colleagues and friends, we've been kind of working on, on, on what a project like that might look of, look like and how we might kind of define the contours of a Sufism and social ethics project. Great. Those sound wonderful. Well, Sadia, thank you for sharing your time with us. It was really great to talk to you. Thank you very much, Christian. It was a pleasure and, and truly joyful to be able to speak to you. That was my conversation with Sadia Sheikh about Sufi narratives of intimacy, Ibn Arabi, gender, and sexuality, which was published with University of North Carolina Press in 2012. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.